Number 226 was selected by Brother Randall as our hymn of encouragement, song of invitation, if you will. So please mark that, and we'll sing that just a little bit after the close of the lesson. Certainly, as we've gathered together today, how many grand and glorious blessings are ours just by being able to be here. But I think it appropriate to make note of just a few things also. You might have noticed some questions that were rolled through on the wall here to my left just before the services began. The Carnes Church of Christ just outside Knoxville has uh, allowed those to be made freely available, and so those weren't due to, to myself or others here at Pippin. I've just put them together and, and allowed them to scroll in that way. In addition to that, the mini Bible Bowl took place yesterday at the Center Grove Congregation just down the way a bit, and many of our group was there, and I'd like to take just a moment and express appreciation on the part of the church to our youngsters who devoted their Saturday afternoon to be present at that event. Many other things that they could have chosen to do, but you chose to be there. The eldership here and all of us appreciate that very much. We want you to know that we admire you and we want to encourage you in, in the work that you're doing. In addition, as you think about the Bible Bowl as it's coming up on September the 11th, be aware, too, that, of course, tonight we'll not be meeting at the 5.30 hour as we normally do, but rather keep that singing this afternoon at, uh, at 2 o'clock on your calendar, and please, if you can, come back and be with us as we host the Putnam County Third Sunday Singing. It's always a delightful time of lifting our voices together. Gentlemen who will lead, our, lead us in our singing are very skilled at that and experienced. Just a very good time of lifting up our thoughts to things that they should be upon. And of course, for the ladies, don't forget that uh, shower at the 3.30 hour this afternoon for, for Sister Pearl Rector. Be sure your sin will find you out. That's the title for the lesson this morning. And you'll notice that one of the things that we can say about sin is in fact uttered in the very nature of that verse. Be sure your sin will find you out. There are many things in life that you and I can lift high as being matters that have a degree of certainty to them. In fact, there's an old adage that death and taxes seemingly are the only two things about which you and I can be sure. As Bible believers, there are many other things we can add to that list than that. But this morning, our interest is not in all the things that might be mentioned, but rather just simply in that utterance that Moses made note of in Numbers 32, verse 23. He spoke to the children of Israel and very calmly, very clearly, and very pointedly to them said, Be sure your sin will find you out. I would like to ask you over the next few moments this morning to go on a journey with me as we look at some of the matters contained in that very simple statement of a long ago. Be sure your sin will find you out. As you'll notice near the bottom of that particular slide, there are many things contained in the Old and New Testaments that remind us about the thoroughness, the terribleness, and the awful character of sin. In fact, one could preach for years and never touch the fullness of all the Bible has to say about the subject of sin. But this morning, as we give some thought to the certainty that associates to it finding its way out, that's what I wish us to consider today. Perhaps there's someone in the audience, and maybe we've each been there at some point or another, when things we have chosen to do in life and we've tried to conceal it, we've tried to hide it, 
maybe all along we knew better, but yet we nonetheless made that attempt. And yet Moses' statement rings so true in our mind, be sure your sin will find you out. What are some things contained in that that we should ever keep on the forefront of our thinking that will help us not make mistakes like trying to conceal and trying to hide that which ought to be made known? As we often are interested to do, let's first of all set the historical setting so that we can more thoroughly appreciate the message per se, and then we will extract some lessons beneficial to you and to me today. The children of Israel on this occasion were still in their wandering from that land of Egypt to the land of Canaan. And during the course of that wandering, we well remember that on occasion, especially near the close of that period of wandering, they ventured on to the eastern side of the Jordan River. And they passed through the land allotments that you and I know of as being that of Edom and that of Moab, and to some extent even that of Ammon as well. As they did so, two of the tribes, in fact, were so satisfied and so contented with that land on the eastern side of the Jordan that they, in fact, approached Moses and said, We are content to dwell here. Let this be our inheritance. Despite the fact that God had said the allotment would be the western side of the Jordan, the tribes would divide up that land and theirs it would be. Two of the tribes... Gad on the one hand, Reuben on the other. They were happy with the eastern side of the Jordan. Let us dwell here, they said. Moses reacted in two ways. First of all, he was greatly concerned about the discouragement or the message thereof that it would bring to the other tribes. What if you reside here and you do not join your brethren, crossing the Jordan and defeating those inhabitants that already are in existence there? You will discourage them in their efforts. You will perhaps lead them to fail in their mission. The second thing about which Moses was concerned was that, have you forgotten what happened? Earlier when there was disbelieving people amongst the children of Israel. Remember when the twelve spies were sent out, ten came back and said, we cannot take the land. God punished you for that. Here, God has given you that land over there for your inheritance. If you disbelieve and you choose to dwell here, will you not receive the punishment from God? Will you not receive His wrath? And so on those two occasions, Moses set before them the following thoughts. You will discourage your brothers, and you will in fact be in line to receive the wrath of God. It is in light of those things that ultimately... An agreement was reached. The people said, even though this land will be ours and we will dwell here and this will be where we will raise our families, we nonetheless will leave our children, our wives, and our flocks here. We will cross the Jordan with the other tribes. We will aid in the defeating of those people. But let it be that we shall return and dwell in this place. Moses ultimately agreed And that was the plan that was arranged. It satisfied the decrees of God, and it satisfied also the concern of Moses. But one final warning that Moses had for them, be sure your sin will find you out. His warning had behind it all the thoughts of the following. 
if you go back upon your word, if you do not cross the Jordan and assist your brothers, if you have in mind a thought to come up short of what you have agreed to and what you have promised, be sure, Gad and Reuben, your sin will find you out. May I submit to you that there are many things in that that can be of assistance to us today. You can put your name and mine as well in that statement. Be sure you're singing and mine will find us out. Let's in fact build a lesson upon that background and do so in the following way. Just as surely as Moses made mention of the character of singing and the terribleness of it, it is true, isn't it, that the Bible description of sin is exceedingly simple in the following definition. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. To note 1 John 3 verse 4. And thus, just as surely as it was for the children of Israel, it remains so for you and for me. Any violation, any transgression of God's will is in fact sin. In the lives of these children of Israel, if they went back on their promise, not crossing the Jordan, not assisting in the habitation of that land of Canaan, they would have been guilty of sin. And Moses reminded them, your sin will find you out. As the Bible describes and discusses sin, it always does so in terms of its nature in an exceedingly dreary and dreadful way. In fact, notice just a few of the things that might be said about it. First, God hates sin. And might it be noted that if our loving and powerful God of heaven hates it, being the being of goodness that He is, that implores us to also develop an extreme hatred toward it. Jesus asserted in John eight eleven to a woman taken in adultery, Go and sin no more. She was to strive to live from that time forward, in such a way that she would not be given to the character of this sinful life that had described her way of living before. Later we notice a number of other things about sin. Isn't it shameful? Oh, how we need to implant in our heart the shamefulness that associates to sin. No matter what Satan may portray before us, and no matter the degree to which it may be seen as a good thing in the short term, it is always shameful. It's disgraceful. It's humiliating before the eyes of God. And it's awful. In Jeremiah 3.25, We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Did you note what he began the verse with? We lie down in our shame. How so? We've sinned against God. And when you and I choose to sin, choose to disobey, choose to rebel, choose to in fact follow that course of action and thought and deed that is aside from the revelation of God, we are in a shameful predicament indeed. In addition to that matter of shamefulness, you'll notice how destructive sin is. Isn't it true that the Bible lifts high the destructiveness of sin? In Ecclesiastes 9 verse 18, Oh, the destructiveness that one sinner can do. That's just one. What if there's a family, a community, a nation, a state of sinners 
Oh, what evil can be brought about thereby. May you and I remember that in life when you and I make the choice to sin, to do that which God condemns, we are engaging in destructive behavior. We harm ourselves. Some sins harm others. We harm the whole character of our relationship with God. We are a person on the loose with harm. Who among us likes to think about harm in that way? Do you and I enjoy hurting ourselves? By and large, you and I would recoil at the thought of taking a knife and slitting our wrist. There are some people sick enough in the world to do that, but most people in the right mind would never think of it. And yet, when you and I choose to sin, we harm ourselves. We drive a wedge between ourselves and God. And that harm is presented not only in that way, but in this one. Consider the reproachfulness of sin. Righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. That means it's insulting. I don't know about you, but I, by and large, don't enjoy being insulted. But yet sin insults you, it mocks you, it laughs at you, it reproaches you, and it does all of us when we engage in it. And all the while we're involved therein, Satan sits back and laughs. He's gotten the upper hand. You and I must be wise, we must be cautious, we must appreciate your sin will find you out. Notice perhaps one or two more thoughts. No wonder it's the case in light of what we've just described that that individual in sin is in a state of desperate need for repair. Something is wrong. Life is not as it should be in the eyes of God. There is a need for being fixed, for being in repair. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. To quote Second Chronicles 7.14. In that case, notice the land was in need of being healed, and it would not occur until their sin had been forgiven. I would submit to you that your life and mine, when their sin present, it is also in need of being forgiven. Thankfully, blessedly, brilliantly, gracefully, the Scriptures describe sin can be forgiven. Psalm 32, 1, Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Your sins and mine can be forgiven. They can be covered. They can be, in fact, blotted out, if you please. That description of Acts twenty two sixteen was a lovely thing for Paul when in baptism his sins could be washed away and forgiven. I'd invite you in light of all of those matters to notice Ephesians 1 verse 7 with me. In whom we have forgiveness of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Thankfully today we have the message of forgiveness. Sin as awful, as terrible, as ungodly as it is, it can be forgiven. And that leads us to notice this. Suppose it's not. Or suppose one wishes to hide or to conceal it. Sin, in fact, does become known. In the time that we have remaining, let's give some more critical thought to this matter of be sure your sin will find you out. And I would submit that as we do that, many lessons might be learned from it. 
not the least of which is this. Sin will become known. It is an absolute certainty. Did you notice in that same verse it said, Be sure? Isn't it amazing how many in our world, though, think that their efforts can lead to hide that sin? That husband or that wife may think they can cover up their affair. The spouse will never learn. Or perhaps that person working in a place of business and establishment embezzles and tries and thinks, oh, I can cover this up. I control the books no one will ever find out. That person who in fact chooses to act in a very mean way toward another, perhaps stabbing them in the back as we often say, I can cover that up. They'll never know who got them fired. They'll never know who it was that started that rumor about them. They'll never know who it was that started that message that led to such emotional harm. To those examples, a million others could be listed. And to each and every one of them, the message still rings true. Be sure your sin will find you out. In what ways can sin become known? How does it seem to find its way always to the brightness of day, despite the fact we think it's buried a mile beneath the surface of earth? How does it become known? Here are some things for us to think about. It is true from time to time there are some people that are so bold and brash that they make no attempt to hide their sin. They flaunt it in open. They pursue it in public. They seemingly do not care if others are aware of their sin or not. In 1 Samuel 15, we have an example of an Old Testament character in that regard. Wasn't it true that Saul was told to destroy the Amalekites? He didn't do it, but he pranced right back into the city with all the oxen and all the sheep and all the things bloating about it. As he did so, he made no attempt to cover up what he had done. In fact, when Samuel challenged him, why haven't you obeyed the voice of the Lord? Though he tried to make excuse initially, he finally said, I have sinned. Today, you and I know people like that, don't we? They make no attempt to cover their sin. Thus, on those instances, they are seemingly are happy to make it known themselves. But the larger portion of our lesson this morning is for those people who try to hide it. What about those who do try to conceal their sin? Cover it up so that seemingly others will never learn of it. There are several things to be noted, not the least of which is this one. First of all, there is a compounding effect to sin, isn't there? To state that another way, and maybe your dad or grandpa told you this, when you have to make one sin, you, you'll need a whole bunch of others to cover it up. You have to keep telling more lies to cover up the first one. You have to continue to do other things that are not right to make up for and conceal the first wrong that you did. There is a compounding effect to sin. Notice some passages that point us in that direction. In Isaiah 30, verse 1, that was so in ancient Israel. They compounded sin unto sin. Jeremiah highlighted the same, and so did Zephaniah. Zephaniah 3, verses 7 and 8. In other words, as we think about what often is really the case, isn't it true that you'll need another lie to cover up the first one? And then a third lie to cover up, or at least expound on the second one. 
there is this compounding effect seemingly that is such a disastrous circle. Some other passages that give us some examples of this. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we remember on the one hand a very lovely and powerful message of the necessity of obedience in which Naaman finally succumbed, humbled himself, and dipped seven times in the Jordan River. And when he came up that seventh time, he was cleansed from his leprosy, and how thankful a man he was, offering to Elisha gifts, valuable things of that day. However, the chapter ends with a very sad story, because Elisha had a servant whose name was Gehazi. Gehazi was enamored by those gifts, that silver, that change of raiment, the other things that Naaman offered to Elisha, but Elisha would not accept it. He refused. However, when Naaman was sent on his way, Gehazi followed him. He made the determination in his mind, I can have some of that. But Elisha doesn't need to know anything about it. I'll hide it from Elisha, you see. I'll simply go and get what Naaman has offered, but I'll bring it to my quarters. Elisha doesn't need to know it. He did what he thought he would. He chased after Naaman. He caught up with him. Naaman lighted off his animals. And in a very kind and humble way, he said, What wouldest my master like? On that occasion, Gehazi told his first lie. My master has changed his mind. You remember when you offered him a change of raiment and the other matters? He's changed his mind. He has sent me now to get some of these things from you. Elisha didn't send him. There's lie number one. When Naaman shared with him the things he was glad to do, Gehazi went back to his quarters, hid them appropriately. Then he went to stand before his master. Elisha said, where have you been? Lie number two. I haven't been anywhere. You see, he had been following Naaman and he had gotten what it was not his rightful thing to have. He's had to tell two lies already. Do you see how it compounds? And do each see the masterful way in which Satan will work it such that there's always another that's going to be needed? It is an impressive thing to notice that in that example, there's one in the New Testament as well. What about the life of the Apostle Peter? We find in the instance of Peter in Luke 22, beginning in verse 54, the scene when on that night our Savior was being tried. There was Peter at a distance, warming himself in front of the fire, and a person asked, weren't you with him? Peter lied. I don't know the man. I haven't been with him. A little time passed by, and a little bit later another person said, but weren't you not with him? I saw you with him. Lie number two now has to be told. I wasn't with him. Twice Peter denied, and that will come to yet a third time a bit later. Peter continues to deny that he ever knew the Lord. And no wonder the sorrowfulness later that night when the Lord espies him at a distance, the cock crowed, Peter went out and wept bitterly. You see, the compounding character of sin ever challenges us to note the unpleasant, the unsatisfying lifestyle of hypocrisy. Doesn't it make you feel dirty? And to make you feel unclean and whole and unwhole, 
as you've told that first lie, now you know you've got to tell another one when that next person asks, where were you? It is something to consider, isn't it, how that compounding effect gnaws away at one's conscience, gnaws away at what one knows is the more proper course of action. And thus, our second lesson, what about the troubled conscience? That properly trained portion of a person that understands well that what's being done is not right, that what's being done is not an appropriate thing. One definition of the conscience would be this. It is that part or element in a person that analyzes his behavior in light of his judgment. You've been taught by dad and by mom or by others, perhaps most fundamentally by this book, that such and such a course of action is not a right one. And thus, when you go against that training and you do it anyway, you uphold it and then try to hide it. There is that sensation, that part of you that is being bothered. And your conscience, when your judgment has gone against that which you've done, it leads to this very unwholesome feeling that agitates, that irritates, that bothers. It stirs us up. And we often describe it in the language of that conscience. Oh, how conscience can so readily and so often bother us. We can't get away from it any hour of the day or night. You may wake up and can't go back to sleep because you know that your conscience from the previous day will not let you rest based on your actions and against the judgment of your heart. Is there any better example than that of Joseph's brothers? In Genesis 37, we learn of that awful deed when they sold their brother into slavery. To a band of strangers heading off to a far distant land, they sold him because they couldn't stand the messages of his dreams. We might ask, did their conscience ever bother them? Oh, indeed it did. In fact, as the years go by, and we think about the story that they told their daddy, oh, but a wild beast tore him apart. Here is his coat of many colors. They let dad reach the conclusion, but he's been murdered But he has been, in fact, killed by this wild beast, and they never offered the correct message, of course. Year by year passes. Year by year. Twenty-two years passed. Twenty-two years passed. Suddenly, when they go into Egypt, they have to get grain for them and for themselves and their families so that they can endure the terrible, terrible famine. And suddenly some strange things start happening. You and I know Joseph was, of course, the one before whom they were standing. But remember, he on one occasion took up Simeon. On another he said, bring back Benjamin, your youngest brother. Do you remember what the brothers responded? This is happening to us because of what we did to Joseph. It's happening to us because those terrible things we did in the past. Twenty-two years have passed. Their conscience was still bothering them. I'd submit that still isn't all. Fifty-six years passed. Their dad was on his deathbed. In fact, their dad shortly would pass away and their conscience was still bothering them. You see, our conscience, when it's properly authored and trained, 
is something that will agitate and bother us, and that may lead to the sin being known. We just can't stand it anymore. Isn't it amazing how often, at least in the last few years, we've seen sports athletes, some of them exceedingly well-known, who have lived very sordid lives and have tried to cover it. And they did for a while, but your sin will find you out. It became known and how terrible things have become for them since. Notice some of the other things that you and I can even note here. Ananias and Sapphira would be another New Testament example of the same. Selling a parcel of land, giving part of it to the apostles, but lying about it, holding back the rest and claiming that they gave it all. They lied. All the while, notice the terribleness that bothered their consciences. There wasn't a very long time span between the death of Ananias and the death of Sapphira, only three hours. But it would appear that there was a conscious effort that was a bothersome thing to them. I might ask you to notice in light of those matters, the events themselves in many cases will reveal the truth. In Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, we learn this rather pointed and straightforward lesson. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. He that soweth to the flesh, though, shall reap corruption. It is the case that when we sow wild oats, we're going to reap a bad oat crop. We're not going to reap roses from oats. We're not going to reap a nice, pleasant, productive crop. We're going to reap what we sow, friends. That goes for young as well as old alike. Your sin will find you out. It is to be noted in light of those matters that perhaps Judas would highlight one closing thought to that part of the lesson. Judas, of course, betrayed his master. He had sold him for 30 pieces of silver. When he recognized and when he acknowledged the terror of the deed he had done, in Matthew 27, verse 3, he took back the money and threw it down at the feet of the money, cha- or rather the feet of the chief priests. Do you remember what they responded? They wouldn't have it. They said, See thou to that. You've done the deed. You're going to have to live with it. They wouldn't accept back the blood money. How bad was Judas's conscience bothering him? In the verses that followed, he went out and hanged himself. He committed suicide. He took his own life. Do you see that a conscience, when it allows itself to pursue in that regard, it is a vicious, vicious thing. Be sure your sin will find you out. But might we be so quick to say this? Even if, and notice I said even if, it's not likely that it can happen, But even if a person can conceal their sin in this life, it is a guaranteed thing it will be known at judgment. Be sure your sin will find you out. Just look in passing at a verse or two that points us in that direction. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin, God knows every sin that you and I have ever committed if they have not been forgiven. It doesn't matter whether we've tried to hide them or not. It doesn't matter whether we have attempted to conceal and cover them or not. God knows every single one of them. Every evil thought, 
Every evil action, every evil word, he knows it all. And at judgment, when the books are open, friend, it's going to be made known. In Luke 12, verse 2, Jesus forewarned those of his day that your sins will be uncovered. And oh, how often do the New Testament writers lead us in the direction of appreciating what will happen at judgment. In Romans 14, 12, so then every one of us shall, must stand before God in judgment. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. There's one text that sounds very similar to that one. It's nestled in the Old Testament. I'd encourage you to listen to the way it reads. For it highlights one aspect that the New Testament one does not. It's found in the closing two verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And it reads as follows. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. Notice, even things that were hailed as secret, what was thought to be concealed, what was considered to be covered, the inspired Old Testament writer said, God will bring it into judgment. You see, your sin will find you out, and my sin will find me out. We can't hide it, and it's futile to try. The far better course of action is in honesty. Approach the deed we've done and Be sorrowful for it. Be repentant of it. And attempt to live no longer beneath the terror of that conscience, but to confess it and to make it right. It perhaps should be noted that inasmuch as God knows all things, we read in Hebrews 4.13 the following challenging passage. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Your life and mine is an open, naked book before the eyes of God. He knows everything. He knows the thoughts of our heart. He knows the words that we spoke yesterday and Friday and Thursday. He knows everything. And He knows the deeds in our life. What we're doing that's wrong. And He also knows what we're doing that's right. As we close this lesson this morning... We have attempted today to discuss Numbers 32, verse 23. And we have done so in the following way. Our whole notion and idea has been this. Be sure your sin will find you out. We've learned the specifics are some people flaunt it easily. They do not attempt to conceal it. Others, though, try to hide it. But we learn their conscience may very well be what leads to it being known. For others, it will be at judgment. For yet others, we have learned, it may well be in the confines of what comes about because of the compounding effect of sin. Today, may we each be wise enough not to be trapped in that vicious circle of sinfulness. Break out of the circle, confess the sin, make things right, repent of it, and let God forgive it. Because when that happens, it's completely gone. Today, if we could be of assistance to a person as you respond to the gospel call of invitation, it may be you've never become a Christian. 
You've never initially confessed the sweet name of Jesus. You've never been baptized for the remission of your sins. You've never begun that walk with Christ by being added to His church. If we could be of assistance in that way today, why not today? There will never be a better day than this one, the 15th of August, 2010. And if we can help you, believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and be baptized. And we would assist you in the ways that we can. If you have begun that walk with Christ, but you haven't been faithful and true, maybe some of the things we've learned today have been descriptive of your life. You've tried to hide sin. You've tried to conceal and cover it up so that even brothers and sisters in Christ don't know it. Friend, be assured God knows it. And in all likelihood, your sin's going to become known to your brothers and sisters at some point. Better today to ask God to forgive it. Ask your brothers and sisters as you confess it to them to forgive you of it so that you can stand right with God. And if we could help you today in doing that, why not let that be known and let us see us by prayer while together we stand and while we sing.